We live in a country where mass casualty incidents such as shootings and bombings, as well as natural disasters that destroy property and lives are occurring on an ever-increasing level. And if it weren't for the first responders, whether it's two ordinary guys with a boat or a middle school teacher or an EMT, a firefighter, a police officer, the death toll would be even worse. It would be unimaginable. But one of the things that all these heroes have to deal with is they can't save everybody. They can't save everybody. There are those who die before they get to the scene. There are those whom they can't save when they do get there. And they suffer under the emotional and psychological trauma for the rest of their lives. They could save some, but they couldn't save them all. Not everyone can be rescued. It's hard to imagine how they're even able to live with that. And this is where we find the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. So turn to the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. The ninth chapter, the first verse. This is how Paul begins this section of three chapters concerning Israel and concerning their rejection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Paul is recognizing that not all of his kinsmen, the Jews, will be saved. And in fact, most of them will perish. And so in verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 9, Paul expresses his deep sorrow, his deep grief. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In the same way that a first responder can't save everyone, some are lost, and they have to deal with the trauma of that reality. When the gospel is preached, some are saved and some are lost. In fact, most are lost. And this is the severe tragedy, the heartbreaking tragedy that Paul's been dealing with in these chapters. He began chapter 9 expressing his great sorrow and unceasing grief that the kinsmen, his kinsmen, the Jews, were lost, separated from Christ, anathema, accursed. Not everyone can be saved. But some were saved, and some are saved. God has not rejected his people just because, for the most part, they rejected him. God always has and will save a remnant. And the verses that we're studying this morning form that bridge between the truth that God has not rejected his people, he has always chosen a remnant, and then after these verses we'll be looking at the future of Israel when all the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Then he says, all Israel will be saved. There's coming a time God will fulfill all of his old covenant promises to Israel. So after this morning's message, you know, there's certain points in the book of Romans where you're so glad you get through the first four chapters about sin and death and everybody's sin and everybody's, nobody's going to make it, you know, that kind of stuff, that you're, you're glad you get to chapter five. Then by the time you get through chapter 5, you know, you're glad to get chapter 8. 
And then this is one of those points where we're glad that we're in chapter 11 where we are because next week we take a marked turn about the future of Israel, how God is going to fulfill all his, his promises, his covenant with Israel. But this morning, we are still dealing with the heartbreaking tragedy of Israel's rejection and unbelief. But in spite of their rejection and unbelief, God has not rejected Israel. He has not rejected them. And in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul gives four proofs that God has not rejected his old covenant people. So go to Romans chapter 11, and let's look at verse 1 for a moment. The first proof is that Paul lifts himself up as living proof that God has not rejected Israel. Verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Meganita, no, no, not ever, never happened. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was an Israelite himself, tied to the land, tied to the, the promises to the tribes, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And the implication is here that because God has not rejected Paul, then no one could claim that God has rejected the entire nation of Israel, because at least there's Paul, but he's just an example. But Paul is saying more than that. He is pointing out that the way he was converted through faith in Jesus Christ would be the same way that God one day will bring Israel as a people to himself. And the second proof that Paul lifts up to show that God has not rejected Israel is God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We define foreknowledge as a predetermination to love. The underlying Greek word prognosko is a compound word consisting of pro, which means prior or before, pro, and gnosko, which means to know. Gnosko, prognosko, it's the same Greek word that's often used to describe the intimate physical relationship between a man and a woman. It's the word Matthew used that when he wrote that Joseph took Mary to be his wife and knew her not. Knew her not. Doesn't mean he didn't know her. Doesn't mean he couldn't pick her out of a crowd. Didn't know her name was Mary and all kinds of other things. But it, know, it means that intimate love relationship between a man and a woman. So the idea that Paul's conveying here is that God made a predetermination to love his own people. And because God is always faithful to carry out his purposes, therefore it's not possible that God has rejected or pushed Israel away. The idea is clearly expressed in these words recorded by the prophet Amos when the Lord said to Israel, Only you have I known. It doesn't mean he didn't know about or know other nations of the earth, but only you, Israel, have I intimately known and I have predetermined to love. Only you have I known among all the families of the earth. Then the third proof that we looked at that God has not rejected Israel is Elijah. Middle of verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And what was the divine response to him? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Proof positive. God kept to himself 
7,000, a remnant to himself. He preserved them, he protected them, he loved them, he cared for them, he knew, he knew them intimately. And the fourth proof is in verses 7 through 10 of Romans chapter 11, the passage that we will have open before us this morning. And the fourth proof is the testimony of Scripture, the proof of God's Word. And in verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul quotes three passages from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes one of the Psalms. And Paul does this for a very specific reason. So I'm going to ask you a trivia question this morning, but it's not trivial. What was the Old Testament called before it's called the Old Testament? Anybody want to give it a shot? The Torah? The Torah's, the Torah's first five books. Yeah, Torah means, means law. You know, it was only called the Old Testament because now we have the New Testament. But the Hebrews didn't call it that, and then they wouldn't. We had the old, now we had the new. So, so what did Israel call the Old Testament? What are the Hebrew scriptures still called today? And one way to, they referred, uh, and even Jesus referred to it this way that we will look at. So, if, yeah, say that again. The law and the prophets, and we'll add one more, the writings. Yeah, so you look at the spine of a, a codex, a book that has the Hebrew Testament. Instead of saying NASB or Holy Bible, it'll say the law, the prophets, and, and the writings. We got Torah. Torah, and that's the Hebrew word. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the law of Moses. So when you hear the law of Moses or you see it in Scripture, that's referring to the first five books. Then we have the Nevi'im, the prophets. These are the books written by the prophets or about the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the rest. And sometimes the law in the prophets, as, as Jerry pointed out, is shorthand to refer to the whole Old Testament. Because Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he said, on these two commandments depend the what? The whole law and the prophets. The whole entirety of scripture depend the Torah and the Nevi'im. But we're still leaving out the writings. Ketuvim, the writings. The Hebrew scriptures would call the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings were the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, Job is one of the writings. And uh, So what does Paul do here in Romans chapter 11 to prove from scripture that God has not rejected his people Israel? He shows that the whole of what we call the Old Testament scripture attests to the fact that God has not rejected his people. And to do that, Paul quotes scripture from the law. In verse 8, he quotes Deuteronomy, which means second law. That's what the word means. He quotes the Torah. They have eyes to see and ears to have not, or to, to hear not. And then Paul quotes the prophets, the Nevi'im, Isaiah 29.10. God gave them a spirit of stupor. The law of the prophets and then the writings, the Ketuvim, he quotes from the Psalm, Psalm 69. And that's in verse 9 of Romans chapter 11. And David said, David wrote the 69th Psalm, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. 
Paul was a great expository preacher and teacher of God's word. He constantly reaches back into the law, the prophets, and the writings. This is good expository teaching. Paul is explaining New Testament truth by expounding the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he quotes uh, the Old Testament in Romans chapter 9 through 11, I think it's something like 58, 58 times. Paul makes his point by using scripture, but I worded that wrong. Actually, expository preaching explains and makes the point scripture makes. Expository preaching and teaching makes the point scripture makes. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul shows from the law, the prophets, and the writings that some got it and some were hardened. Some were saved and many were not. And that this was prophesied in the law, the prophets, and the writings, so we should not be dismayed or surprised by it. It was God's plan from the beginning. So with that, look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 11. The seventh verse. What then? What is the conclusion of all of this that Paul has been talking about this rejection stuff, this hardening stuff, this, this, this choosing things, you know, the elect? What are we to make of it? Then he says, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Literally, but what? But those who were chosen obtained it. They were elected, literally. And the rest were hardened. What they were seeking, they had not attained. The word translated seek is a very interesting word. The word translated seek is zeteo, Z-E-T-E-O. The idea is looking for something, seeking. But it has another word in front of it, and that word is epi. So it's epizeteo. The word epi can be around, uh, that kind of thing, but it makes it a very intense kind of seeking. It's looking high and low. It's looking everywhere. It's seeking everywhere. It means to earnestly, diligently seek. The Jewish people were fanatically religious, and they were seeking, 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 seeking. They spend their whole lives seeking. They were seeking people. And the present tense of the verb indicates the constancy of their effort. They were constantly doing it. But the question is, what were they seeking? So go back to Romans chapter 10, chapter before, at verse 2. Because we see what they were, were seeking. Paul says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 10, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They are ignorant of something. And what they are ignorant of is God's righteousness. Their ignorance of the righteousness that comes by faith. They are ignorant of becoming the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They didn't know that. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Seeking, seeking, seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. So they went about to establish their own, and they established it to the nth degree. As you've probably heard before, they added to the law of Moses 350 do's, one for every day of the year, and 250 don'ts. And either, under each one of those do's and don'ts, they had category after category after category. Their pyramid chart would 
It wouldn't even fit on today's computers, I don't think. They established their own righteousness to the nth degree. And they live for this righteousness of their own. They live for keeping all the rules, all the ceremonies, all the rituals, all the laws, all the commandments. They were seeking, 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 seeking. And in doing so, they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. They never learned that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They didn't know that it was a matter of faith, not works. So Paul says Israel sought and sought and sought to be right with God, but they never got it. But there was a group that did. We see it in verse 7 of, of Romans chapter 11. In the middle, but those who were chosen, the word there is those who are elect, obtained it. They obtained it. Those who are chosen, the elect obtain God's righteousness. This is where we have to understand, and we see this balance or tension in the book of Romans, that salvation has a side where God elects. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. But there's a human side where we receive Christ by faith. We are saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that tension, that, and, and depending where you are in the book of Romans, you're going to see that one is probably going to be emphasized over the other. And here in Romans chapter 11, the emphasis is on the elect rather than not on faith. If you want to know how to be saved by faith, go back to Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And that's where it will really give it to you. But here the emphasis is on the election of God because it's demonstrating to us that God in his sovereignty chose Israel and he's not through with Israel because he chose them. So the emphasis is on God's choosing of them. And it's not to say that there's no balance that there is. We receive by faith, and it takes, but it takes God's choosing as we do that. But here Paul is emphasizing the choosing of God and it's just emphasis here. But also the emphasis is on the rest were hardened. The rest were hardened. The remnant was chosen. The rest were hardened. And the grammatical form of it here indicates that they were hardened by some outside power. Some outside force. And that force is none other than God himself. They were hardened by God. You might ask, does God harden people? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, the 18th verse. After he's been talking about Esau and Jacob and Abraham and all of those others, and Pharaoh is the, the example, you know, where Pharaoh first hardened his own heart and then he got harder and harder and then God hardened his heart. Does God harden people? Verse 9, or verse 18 of Romans chapter 9, So then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He has mercy on those that he chooses, and he hardens those that he desires. And of course, Pharaoh is the main example of that in that chapter. And so in verse 8 of Romans chapter 11, Paul shows us how the rest were hardened. Why some people just don't get it. Why some people aren't saved. They have been hardened. In verse 8, 
quoting Deuteronomy and, and, uh, and Isaiah, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, the only place that word for stupor occurs in the Bible is, is right here. So I thought, since Paul only used it once, I'm going to make up a word to help us understand it this morning. They were stupefied. They were stupefied. God gave them a spirit of stupor. It means to be numbed to it. Actually, the Greek word means to be violently numbed to it. It refers from a numbness that you get from a sting. From a sting. I remember watching boxing matches when I was growing up. And I love to watch boxing. I, I box. I love to box. But be watching the match and... Uh, one of the boxers, boxers would break his hand. And that was not uncommon because when you punched at a guy and he would duck, you could hit him hard on the head, on the hardest part of his body, and it broke your hand. And as a result, the hand swells, and you feel a little bit of sting at the first, but then the hand goes completely numb. Goes completely numb. You can't feel anything in that hand. And the announcers would always say, he broke his hand, so he'd better try to finish the fight before the numbness wears off. Because when the numbness wears off, you know, that hand's going to be totally useless. But here it is God who violently stung them into numbness. And what's that all about? Why did God give them a spirit of stupor, of numbness, of dullness, where they had eyes that couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear? To answer that, let, let's go back to one of the parables Jesus told. And in fact, it tells us why Jesus taught in parables. And it's in Gospels, Matthew's Gospel. The 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to start it at verse 1. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus told the parable of the sower who went out to seed. Uh, out to seeds. <laughs> Sow the seeds. And so it begins in verse, it's going to be one of them mornings, just hang there with me. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. A large crowd, large crowds gathered to him, and he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he sowed. Some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop of some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, I would venture to say that most of us know what that's talking about here. Because we grew up in Sunday school, we've been in church, we've studied the parables, and uh, we, we get a pretty good idea of what that means. Plus, we have the Holy Spirit in us, who is the teacher of all things. So we begin to get it. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Nobody got it. When Jesus said this, nobody got it. So the disciples wondered why Jesus taught in parables when nobody got it. Verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And then we're going to say somebody did get it, but the crowd as a whole didn't get it. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, 
of heaven, but to them has not been granted. So think about, why did Jesus speak in parables for a moment? Why did Jesus do this? What is a parable? Somebody said a parable is a, an earthy, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It tells us, parables tell us a lot about how this, the kingdom of God works, but Jesus' answer was not what we'd expect. Jesus didn't speak in parables to make it easier to understand. He didn't speak in parables to make it easier for people to believe, to tell a simple story so people would get it. And he said to them, it's, it's been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Jesus never explained what a parable meant to the crowd. He only explained it to his disciples. He only explained the parables to his disciples. In fact, there was a point in Jesus' ministry, before, shortly before he went to the cross, where Jesus spoke to the crowd only in parables. No more Sermon on the Mount. No more nice stories about other things. No more just telling them straight out. He only spoke in parables. So why was that? It was so that those who continually rejected the message would be left in their spiritual blindness as to its meaning. Why? Verse 12. For whoever has to him more shall be given. That would be the disciples. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, says Jesus, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then Jesus quotes the same passage in Isaiah that Paul quoted in Romans chapter 11, but Jesus quotes it more extensively. Jesus shows that their spirit of stupor, their blindness and deafness, is a fulfillment of Scripture. Fulfillment of Scripture, verse 14. Prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal him. When Jesus spoke in a parable, there would be some who didn't understand. Actually, there would be most who didn't understand the parable. They were blind, they were deaf to its meaning then there would be those who begin to understand or are part of it. And, and the Holy Spirit is working in their life. They want to hear more. Like the disciples who are open and they wanted a greater understanding. So, so the disciples, when the opportunity arose and the crowd was gone, they would say, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, speaking to the disciples, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. There was many in the Old Testament. God never gave full revelation of who Jesus is to any one prophet in the Old Testament. And they had part of it. And Paul says that the prophets searched and searched. They diligently searched to see what this all brings together. Can you imagine being Daniel in Babylon and in Persia and captivity? And every day, he would search the scriptures. He would look in the scriptures. What is this all about, about the prophet, the Messiah? And one day, he was reading from the prophet Jeremiah that said, it's going to be 70 years. And 
Daniel looked at the Babylonian cal uh, calendar and said, this is it. <laughs> this is it. And he went into that upper room and he prayed with the window open towards Jerusalem. And he prayed for the fulfillment of scripture because he had eyes to see and, and ears to hear. But let me give you just a couple of thoughts as to why Jesus spoke in parables. And why God gave some a spirit of stupor. And the first is, and this is the extreme case, that many like the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests and the rulers of the people, like Pharaoh, and they hate to be compared to Pharaoh. <laughs> they, they would just hate that. But like Pharaoh, they already had hard, stiff-necked hearts, and they rejected Christ immediately. And the more they heard, the more they saw Jesus work, the harder and harder and harder their hearts became. And the consequence of this kind of a hardened heart is that God hardens it even more, just like in the case of Pharaoh. And when they heard Jesus speak, it only served to harden their hearts more and more. And we have a case in point, just one chapter back in, in Gospels Matthew in chapter 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verse 30 in a minute. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. This is where Jesus tells us about the unforgivable sin, which is what? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin? We pick it up in verse 30, and then we'll back it up in the text to see how and why the stiff-necked Pharisees had committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus said in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? You could call it terminal hardening. Terminal hardening. So what had the Pharisees done to deserve and receive this eternal judgment? We go back up to verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. In the physical sense, he had ears to hear and eyes to see. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The term blasphemy can be generally defined as defiant irreverence. Defiant irreverence. It's purposeful. It's willful. It's defiant. And it's irreverence against God. It can be applied to such sins as cursing God or willfully degrading things related to God. This particular case of blasphemy, however, is called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The Pharisees, having seen and witnessed irrefutable proof, they saw what Jesus did, they knew it was a God. They heard what Jesus said, they knew that was a God. He did miracles by the power of God, but instead they claimed that the Lord was possessed by a demon. And they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Beelzebul, ruler, the, the Satan, ruler of the demons. 
They said that's not the Holy Spirit working, that's demonic. That's Satan doing this. They heard what Jesus said. They, they, did, they saw what Jesus did. They had, in other words, full knowledge of who Jesus was. Jesus had presented to them irrefutable proof that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet they attributed that to Satan. They attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They knew it was God, yet they attributed it to Beelzebul. In other words, they fully rejected Jesus to the point there was no turning back. There was no turning back. And here's the deal. Because they refused the way of faith, they had become insensitive, dull, numbed to God's self-revelation in Scripture. Insensitive to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Insensitive to the promptings and the work of God's Holy Spirit. And disobedience at any level, disobedience to God, never leaves a person in the same position. You can't disobey God and remain what you are. Same way you can't obey God and remain what you are because you become more and more like God as you obey. In the same way, you can't disobey God and remain where you are and just say, oh, that's okay, I, I disobeyed God. Where obedience draws a person into an ever-increasingly intimate relationship with God, disobedience separates from God and hardens every time. I get up in the morning and I know that God wants me to do something. Maybe it's from his word. Maybe it's just because it's a good thing to do and I've been commanded in scripture to do that. If I say no to God, I am hardened. I am hardened. And the tragic aspect of hardening is that disobedient people are increasingly numbed. Numbed and dull. They do not grasp the nature of their spiritual apostasy. They, they reject what Christ says. They are hardened. And they reject and they are hardened more. Spiritual hardening is a terminal disorder, which in its advanced stages, there's no remedy for it. In this case, Jesus speaks in parables. It was a judgment. And so that's what's summarized in verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 11. Got to get back to Romans. And David says, and now here we're talking about those who are spiritually and terminally hardened. We're not talking about the Christian here who, who lives his life. And, you know, yes, when you disobey God, you're hardened. But what are we supposed to do? Take it to God. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful in righteousness to cleanse us from all our sins. And so there, there is a way for a Christian. But now we're talking about the Pharisees, the scribes in Scripture and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. What does a person who is totally blind or totally in the dark do? You know, they're, they're trying to find their way in the dark. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. And their backs are bent forever. But, and we close with this, speaking in parables was a judgment, but it's also a mercy. It's also a mercy. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks in Romans chapter 11, the mercy. So how is Jesus speaking in parables to large crowds of mercy? Speaking in a way that they could not understand? How does that make sense, that Jesus would speak in a way that they could not get it? Now again, this doesn't apply to us today. When we proclaim the gospel, we need to be as clear and, <laughs> and, and uh, all those things as possible to clearly lay out who Jesus is and what he has done for us in the best possible way. So well, now we're going back to why Jesus did in, in the parables. He spoke in parables. By speaking in parables to the crowds, unless they had ears to hear and eyes to see, the Holy Spirit did not give some or most in the crowd enough understanding either to reject Jesus or to receive him, right? They, they were clueless. We had the terminal hardened, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests, but here we have people who are not hardened. They don't know enough to be hardened and disobedient because they didn't get it. They were clueless. They were clueless. They were just ignorant instead of hardened. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and the apostles preached the gospel, some of them came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. These are the ones to whom God has given mercy, and it was a great mercy that they didn't reject it before. God didn't give them enough understanding to reject it. And now they are in a position through God's Holy Spirit that they can, they can be saved. And that's where verse 5 of Romans chapter 11 points to this. In the same way then, there has always come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Even at the present time, and of course the remnant it's talking about here is the remnant of Israel, but it's true with us as believers as well. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road that leads to, to life. And, you know, God knows, and it's all part of his plan, he knows that as Christians will always be in the minority. And in that sense, we are a remnant as well. And so next time, we're going to see how God is still at work bringing out a remnant, bringing out a remnant of his old covenant people and bringing them at a point in time to himself. So I'm going to close with what we call the teaser in radio, Christian radio. When Chuck Swindoll comes on the air, and this is not true of every, every preacher on the radio, but you hear him pulling something out of his message that just really gets your attention in a way that you want to hear the rest of what he has to say, and that's called a teaser. So I'm going to give you a teaser this morning because uh, next Sunday at the first part of the message, I anticipate that we'll spend 10 minutes or so solving why things are the way they are in the Middle East today. In the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, they're going to be all over the news this week. They're going to be all over there, and they have been for several weeks. You know, I get up in the morning and look at my cell phone, my smartphone, and pull up the news apps and go, oh, wow, there's Israel again. I wish I hadn't seen that so early in the morning. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, we live at a time where, where Israel, the Palestinians, the Arab states, Islam, it's just the biggest part of our news. 
And so for the next 10 or 15 minutes next Sunday, you're going to know why. You're going to know why from God's word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are faithful to what you have promised. And Father, sometimes it seems like the whole world is against us as Christians, as believers, and it's getting worse and our worse in our country and in our world. And the answer to that is, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you said it would be this way. You said it would be this way, that it's part of your plan. And over the last 2,000 years, you have been protecting a remnant of your people, the Old Covenant people, the Jews. How, how amazing, God, your protection. Yes, we look at the Holocaust and other things and the, the millions that have died. And, you know, but yet, you have and still are preserving a remnant. And Father, we thank you that as believers in Jesus Christ, know what we believe and what we say and, and what we do that will never be the prevailing culture of our country. Never will be. But Father, when we see ourselves as a remnant in the world of whom you are keeping every promise you have made to us. Father, it gives us peace. It gives us joy. It gives us confidence in you, God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.